things that we will do as parents, rightfully so, is we'll, you know, we'll let our kid win at the race or we'll let them win at Candyland because, you know, we, we want them to have that happiness and that experience and that joy. And, and to be honest, them winning is way easier than if they lose. But one thing that to set them up for success in the real world um, is to sometimes give them exposure to losing in a controlled setting. So, you know, maybe you have that race and one time you win and but then you have the time after to you know help them navigate those feelings and work through them and understand that this is just one outcome and sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose but there's okay it's okay and there's benefits to both welcome to the raising greatness podcast where we ask the questions every parent wants to know i'm ryan adams And in today's episode, we have Karen Irwin, the founder of Rue Family. Karen holds a master's degree in early childhood studies and is a certified child life specialist. She has over 10 years of experience supporting children and families through illness at one of the largest children's hospitals, the Hospital for Sick Children. Join us as we learn about how to communicate with kids in a time of crisis, reduce tantrums, deal with transitions like going back to school, limit sibling fights, plus a foolproof method to make new friends, manage screen time, and so much more. Good morning, Karen. I want to thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, awesome. So Karen, you are um, a child parenting expert. You've got a consulting business on the side, but you also have a pretty interesting background where you worked at Sick Kids and you helped um, kind of consult families that were going through some pretty tough times. I'd like to maybe just start there before we get into some, um, I guess, normal parenting questions, because it seems like a pretty intense job and it seems like um, it just seems like a unique place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm a certified child life specialist, which is a special post-grad certificate that uh, you use play and child development knowledge to support families during times of challenge. And so I worked at the Hospital for Sick Children for over a decade as a certified child life specialist, where I worked in a variety of different areas throughout my time there. But my role was to help patients and families cope with their hospital experience help uh, maintain development, um, provide, you know, explanation and understanding in an age-appropriate way as to what was going on and why, uh, procedural support, all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I love that job. It was a really great position for me and great foundation. And But one of the things I noticed when I started to have my own children, I have three children under the age of 11, um, was that, you know, when I would go through challenging times as a parent or my peers were, a lot of the same supports and strategies that I was providing for families at sick kids, although tweaked a little bit, were very helpful for the mainstream family and that same way of thinking and type of support. And so that's why I started Root Family, because I saw sort of a need to take that education and skill set and apply it to everyday parenting and the journey that parents are, are going through with their families. 
I, I, I can't even imagine. Um, I've got a three-month-old son. It's, a, it's our first child now. And um, we actually uh, live about two blocks away from sick kids as well. So it's like, uh, you know, we'll see the helicopter drop in. And I just, you know, cannot imagine the stress that a lot of families would be going through. So to have a resource like you kind of helping um, to take them through it, invaluable. Is there any, maybe any families out there that are struggling with maybe a health issue with their children? Is there anything that you could share that um, maybe just like one tip or trick that can help them kind of um, process it or? Um, get through it a little bit easier? Yeah, well, actually, too, when if they are being seen in a healthcare setting, especially a pediatric one, to access child life, most of these, you know, even community hospitals, but as well, obviously, SickKids has that available, and it's such a valuable resource. I think, though, also, um, one of my greatest pieces of advice is, you know, a, a communication with children. And so, you know, sometimes families will hold back information and in fear of that having a negative impact on their kids. But we know that when we provide children with age appropriate, accurate information, it actually helps support them and helps them be more successful and less stressed because kids are aware and they often know things are going on and they also have amazing imaginations. And sometimes by us taking the time to, you know, share age-appropriate, clear information about what's going on. It almost even heals them and helps them manage and cope a lot better. So find opportunities for that communication. And if you don't know how to do that yourself, then seek a resource like myself or someone in the hospital that can help you find the language and the vocabulary and stuff to support your child. I find that as adults, we, we often live in the worst case scenario of, of events. Do you find that for the vast majority of children? Is that a default setting that, that with their imaginations that they live in a worst case scenario? Or are they usually more present to just what's kind of happening without the story associated with it? Well, I mean, they obviously have limited experience, right? So they don't have that background to maybe guide their thoughts. But again, they have amazing imaginations. And so their thoughts actually might go beyond what we might even consider. Um, they're also very, like I said, aware. And um, because children learn so vastly through their environment and what's going around them, they're very good at picking up on like cues and, you know, people's tones of voice and uh, maybe how they're, you know, connecting with them or whatever. And that can sort of set off a red flag or, you know, make them think like, oh, is something going on here that I should be worried about? Um, and so I think maybe that their brain doesn't take them to a darker place, but their brain's sort of working on overdrive, like what's going on here? What do I need to know? creating stress and anxiety. And so I think that's why we want to provide them with that accurate age appropriate information. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Uh, well, th well, thank you for sharing that because it's uh, it's definitely a topic that uh, you hope as a parent that you never have to go through, but there's always going to be challenges and there's always going to be um, things that come out of left field a little bit. So uh, mm -hmm. having the resources and the tips and tricks to kind of deal with that internally as well as externally, um, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, um, this time of year, uh, it's all about back to school. And I know um, that with you and your consultants at uh, Rue Family, that you guys are talking a lot about back to school and how to transition kids getting back to school. So maybe let's talk a little bit about um, this time of year and, and what you see and, and, and any uh, guidance that you could provide parents to help that transition be a little bit smoother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, obviously, back to school is a huge transition for children and families, even though it comes every year, it's still different, right? And transitions are hard for children. I think that's something that we have to take into consideration is it's a change. And 
one of the reasons why change and transition is challenging for kids, whether it's going back to school or whether it's going from playtime to the bath, is because children feel a bit out of control during that time because they don't know what to expect. And one of the things that helps children be successful is being in the know because that helps them feel in control, helps them feel more secure, helps them be adaptable and manage and be more successful. And so... Yes, back to school is a, is a busy time for us. It's an important time that we support families. I think that one of the best pieces of advice that I can give is to, and even though we're already like three weeks in or whatever, to prepare kids and, you know, previous to school starting, that could be preparing them about, you know, their teacher's name and where they get dropped off and all that sort of stuff. But now that we're into things, you know, giving a lot of preview and talk about the routines of the classroom, what lunch might look like, have them practice using their lunch containers, drop off what that's going to look like, what you're going to do, all that sort of information helps set kids up for success because they feel in the know and in control. And when those things that you've discussed with them prior to drop off or the day before lunch or whatever, start to play out in their reality. It's almost like little check marks going off in their head being like, oh yeah, I knew this was going to happen. And, you know, it might be um, a little bit rocky for them to adjust and settle in, but they're going to have greater success because they're going to have the better element of feeling of control. So as a parent, one of our roles is to obviously prepare our children for what's going to be coming. Um, so it's not so new. So they're almost doing a dress rehearsal before actually mm. getting to school and, and seeing that process. Yeah, um, it makes a role, lot of sense. role playing is like one of the best tools for parents to help set their kids up for success because children love play. Play is their most natural way to learn. But role play helps you sort of preview in a fun way that's meaningful for your child for what's to come. And so anytime we can do that around a big transition, like returning to school, that's going to help kids, you know, get go there with their best foot forward. That makes a lot of sense. Um so, so talking about the, the process of school and obviously for the last couple of years, there's been some challenges with, um, with COVID kind of changing. People are learning from uh, at home a little bit more then going back into the classrooms and then being pulled in and out depending on where you are, um, you know, in the country. But have you seen kids, even your own kids or just families that you're working with, have you seen that transition be exceptionally more difficult this year or, or last year as opposed to years uh, previous? Um, and maybe just can you talk a little bit about um, just how to reintegrate and socializing kids that may have been deprived of that over the last couple of years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely I see in my practice and with my own children, um, it's created, you know, more, I don't want to say challenge, but more well, I guess challenge or trickiness <laughs> around the, that socialization and children having the skills and the experience and the exposure of like putting themselves out there and connecting with others. I just think, you know, children get better at things when they have exposure to things. And a lot of kids haven't had exposure to, you know, being in a schoolyard and not being cohorted with just, you know, their 20 whatever kids in their class, but being in the open schoolyard and, you know, having the freedom to connect with whomever and do whatever. And yes, that's wonderful to be able to allow our kids to do that. But I think the thing we have to realize is they might not have the skills to be successful at that. And 
feel confident in doing that. And so that's one of the biggest things that I'm seeing is and helping families with basically like how can we teach our children to network, <laughs> to be able to be confident, to like go out to the schoolyard and insert themselves into play or learn someone else's name or make a connection with someone that then they can build on over time. And I think a lot of children, again, are lacking the experience and the skills in doing that. And then therefore that impacts their confidence in being able to do that. And so it's something that I've noticed the pandemic has had an, a, sort of an impact on. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think another thing I'm noticing a lot is separating from their parent into their child care provider's care. So whether that's being in the daycare environment or whether that's being in the school environment, especially with early school age kids, so kids under the age of seven, definitely that's something I've noticed is more of a challenge for kids. And again, I just think they just haven't had that exposure to, you know, being dropped off and, um, you know, getting care from someone else. Again, that's positive and that's great that that's happening now, but we have to help kids um, settle into that. So helping kids is, is one angle, but what about the parents that are dealing with separation anxiety, maybe for the first time? Um, I know a lot of uh, my friends and, uh, you know, family members that they have, they have young kids and their kids are going into kindergarten for the first time or preschool or, you know, even into, you know, I guess every year that little bit of separation is, is not easy. But any tips for the parents to kind of deal with that uh, transition? Yeah, so... I mean, having a plan, um, especially a drop-off, I think is really important, a strategy that you use to help do that actual separation. Not only is that going to help your child because it's going to be consistent from day to day to day, but it's going to help you, the parent, because I feel like parents want to do something and sometimes they don't know what to do. And so then that creates more stress for them. And obviously our children feed off of that. And so having like a plan and strategy in place as to how you actually implement a drop off is really helpful. I also think too, it's hard for parents, but I'm often giving advice to parents that the best thing you can do is have a ritual that you do to say goodbye to your child pass them off to the other childcare provider, and then for you to turn and walk away and not linger and hang around. And that's because, you know, it's actually creating more challenge for our kids because they're like, are my parents staying? Or are they going? What's happening? Making it harder for them to settle in. And that inconsistency creates almost stress in our kids. Also, though, it makes it more difficult for the childcare provider because they can't maybe necessarily distract your child and get them, you know, moving through the motions of the daily routine making it harder for your child to settle. So again, I know it's hard to leave your kid crying in someone else's care. We gotta trust those childcare providers that they know what to do. And it's way better for you to turn and walk away and you know, maybe call the school in an hour and see how your kid is settled in. Um, because I think that that's going to be much more productive for the teacher and your child and, and for you. So once you've passed off your child and they're going to school, for example, um, it's, it's not always, as parents, we want to help them make friends and friends are obviously a huge part of just life in general, but you know, we don't want to overstep, um, and, and get too involved with making friends. So I know on, on your guys' Instagram at roo.family, that's R-O-O.family, you guys had a great post recently about three tips to help your kid make, make friends. Do you want to share some of those tips um, with our listeners? Yeah. So the best tip that I can say always tell parents is to learn some names of the children in your child's class and find opportunities in your home life to just use those kids' names. Like 
you know, just saying, I wonder what, um, you know, Max did for the summer. Like you should ask him. It would be cool to see if he went to camp too. Or, you know, that's where Mia lives. I didn't know if you know that, but we walk by her house every day. The reason why we're doing this is because it creates familiarity. So when our children hear those names in their safe, secure setting, and then they start to hear them in school, it again creates that familiarity, helping them feel like, oh, I've heard about this person, giving them that greater confidence to maybe go and make a connection. So that's one. The other thing is I recommend for families to you know, instead of being like, did you make any friends? Or when you drop your kid off, you're like, go make some friends today. Um, it's best to actually give your child a specific task of something that they can do that might help them create a connection. Because when we're like, go make some friends, that's quite overwhelming for a kid. Like how, who, when, where, what? I'm just not even gonna try. And so instead, if you're, you could say like, I noticed there's a kid in the schoolyard that has a Paw Patrol backpack and you love Paw Patrol, you should go ask them who their favorite pup is. That's giving them that tangible task, which is specific, gonna make them much more successful at maybe going and doing that. And if you pick them up, you can be like, so did you learn that kid's favorite pup? And if they're like, no, you could troubleshoot. Oh, did you not know when? Or did you not know what to say? Let's practice. Let's pretend. And so that, again, helps build them up to be successful um, and maybe actually be able to make that connection with that individual. That's fantastic pieces <laughs> of advice. I mean, the planting the seed early on from a psychological standpoint of planting the children's names that you would almost kind of want to encourage them to get to know. It, it makes it more familiar in their minds and then um, giving them a specific task as well. It just kind of, it takes this big, scary, uh, open-ended adventure and it really kind of crystallizes it down to something that's manageable and executable. So fantastic yeah. advice. That, oh, that's okay. great. I mean, it's helpful for adults too, right? <laughs> Look at who's attending, learn some names, who <laughs> see what they're interested in, make some connections yeah no so it's it's helpful. i think that's fantastic for anybody that struggles with networking um and going to networking advice or events like that's you know look at the yeah. guest list and then give yourself <laughs> yeah. a little goal that i'm going to meet these three people specifically yeah, and it just yeah. makes it that much easier yeah uh, that's great okay so now um you know kids are at school and then um when they come back from school there's a couple things that you suggest when it comes to decompressing or ways to kind of transition them from school into now after school time can we talk a little bit about that transition Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is something that obviously in the early school days and weeks and months maybe is common, but I'm seeing it as being even more common among families now, I think because of the pandemic experience. And one of the things I'm constantly reminding parents is, you know, when children are at school or daycare, they are self-regulating all day long. They're, you know, lining up, they're waiting their turn before they answer the question. They're sharing materials with their peers. They're, you know, all the things which are good because it helps them be successful and have great school days and is important for their learning, but it does take a lot out of children. So then what happens is children come home and they're safe place around those who they know are there for them no matter what and they kind of just let it all out they just don't want to self-regulate anymore because they've been doing that all day at school and that's why we see what we call this after school restraint collapse it's just like i'm done and they just have a meltdown or struggle you know at that time and so 
there are some things that can help children to maybe prevent that from happening or make it less intense or shorter or whatever. Um, one is having a very consistent after school routine because that creates, again, that kind of familiarity, which helps children cope. You know, I always know I come home and I do these whatever things before I have dinner. That, that helps. The other thing is, especially with our young children, children who are in kindergarten and grade one, make sure you give them a snack right away. We underestimate kids' ability to be able to kind of navigate their food independently throughout the school day. One of the things sometimes that happens is kids are just excited about the lunchbox. They eat everything before even lunch, and then obviously they're hungry. So that makes it harder for them to manage. And then the third thing that I find really helps families is trying to find an opportunity to let your child just decompress and almost like shed their school day, reset, and now be able to settle into their home day. And an age-appropriate way to do that for kids, I'd say of all ages, is to have them do some sort of activity that they enjoy, that they lead, that they're in charge of, they don't have to share with their sibling or decide what to do. So that could be like creating a basket of toys that you know your kid loves that you pull out at that time and they just sit there and play with them and do whatever they need to do with that. It could also be, to be honest, just sitting and vegging and watching a show. I think that's a really great time to incorporate screen time because it's an opportunity just to decompress. And, you know, we like to do that. So it's similar for kids. And often you'll find after that your child's much better able to you know, comply and go through the next sort of set of routines that need to happen um, as we get them, you know, ready for dinner in bed. Well, I remember in my own childhood, all the best cartoons were on right mm-hmm. after school. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it was definitely a, a golden time to sit down and and, uh, and veg, as you say. Yeah. But then that does beg the natural question um, on a lot of parents' mind is is how to manage screen time and, you know, the, the Fortnites and the video games. And, you know, there, there's a lot... Um, there's just a lot of thought around what's the right amount of screen time. How do you transition them away from screen time, especially if it's pretty intense? Um, what's your advice or what's your take on um, screen time for kids? Yeah. So, um, you know, pre pandemic, there were very sort of clear um, guidelines around, around the amount of time children should interact with screens or devices, depending on their age and stage of development. And, you know, I obviously I think those are still important and good to consider, but I think definitely the pandemic has changed the way that we view and use screens and, and the roles that they play in our lives. And so I there's a couple sort of things that I suggest families to think about to shift a bit and to help it be more successful in kind of like the modern day of how we're using screens. So I personally think that screens should be if, if you're going to allow them in your household, then I, I recommend that you have a time each day, the same time, preferably, that your child is able to engage with that screen. Because that does two things. One, that prepares your kid. They always know, you know, after I do my homework, before dinner, I get my screen. I also think that that helps children separate from it a lot better because they know it's coming again. One of the reasons why children have struggled from transitioning from screens into the next part of their day is because they don't know when it's coming again. And so obviously they love it. And if I don't know when it's coming again, it's going to be more of a challenge for me to separate from it. 
The other thing I think that's really important for younger children, especially, is it's best to have the screen away from them, like up on the wall, like a TV or an iPad that's away from them versus something tactile that they're holding on to, because that is creating a real, um, you know, if they it's theirs, they have that possessiveness over it. Um, also, it's very impulse driven because they are interacting with it constantly and that stimulation can make it difficult for children to transition from using the screen into the next phase of their day. So having it where they enjoy it, but it's away from them can definitely help with that. But then on top of all that, especially as we get into like video games and, you know, older children and what they might be engaging with, I think parents need to pay huge attention to the content that their children are engaging with. Um, there's really great resources. One of them is called commonsensemedia.org. And you can go on there and type in pretty much any form of media that your child might engage with and learn about it and decide whether it's something that you think is appropriate for their age and stage of development. And I think parents need to be on that and, you know, make family decisions around what's allowed and what's not. And and explain why and you know create this culture where maybe it ebbs and flows maybe we evolve and but we always keep checking in and also we're informed we know what kids want to be into we know how these apps and things might be being used and so we can just have that dialogue and that connection to make sure that our kids are engaging with the content appropriately for you know for who they are and what stage they're at in childhood now, there may be a stage uh, when we, we feel like we've done everything right, but we still kind of get that inevitable tantrum um, for, from our child. Uh, what, what would you say is, is a good way to handle um, when, when a child is kind of breaking down and, and actually throwing a bit of a tantrum? Yeah, so obviously, as children grow and develop, the strategies might change a bit. But I think one of the sort of common themes among all the strategies that I would suggest for families is... Well, there's two actually. One is when children are starting to get upset and go into that sort of tantrum mode, we want to not in that moment start to engage with them around, you know, negotiating or the reason why we're not allowing it or, or you know, all that dialogue and jargon. Because first of all, your kid's not in the space to listen and learn from all that. So it's kind of a waste of your time. But second, you have to realize that when a children is in that state of, of, of tantruming, they are overstimulated and overwhelmed. And that's just adding more fuel to their fire. So it's not benefiting them. It's actually creating it, making it worse. And so I recommend that we just like stop um, addressing the moment as to why, you know, this maybe even began to exist in the, in the beginning. We want it, we, we do maybe address the moment, but at a later time, maybe a couple hours later at dinner after our child's calmed down. The other thing though, again, is on that level is we want to destimulate the environment. So one of the best ways to do that is getting down to your child's level. So if they're a toddler, getting down. If they're a teenager and they're sitting, sit down next to them. Because having, first of all, that, that, that initiates power struggle right away, one person being up and the other person being down. But we also know that when we come to their level, that right there destimulates the environment, which sets them up to be successful, to be able to eventually come down and calm down. And then my final tip, again, that I would say is a common theme among all ages and stages is to be consistent in how you support kids in these tantrums. Tantrums are going to happen. 
And if we can be consistent in our strategy, our phrasing that we do, what we do, whatever, that's going to create a coping strategy for your child because your child will be like, oh, I've been here before. This is how my leader has supported me. Okay. And that's going to right there help them be more successful at at self-regulating and coming down. That's fantastic. So not quite to the level of a tantrum, but a child's often going to encounter disappointment and especially like in sports or in any aspect of life. So what would you suggest is, is a good way to prepare our children for, for losing per se, or for things not going their way? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, so one is give them exposure to losing. <laughs> and I think this is something that we can, you know, I don't mean like just beat your kid, uh, like beat them at the, all the games <laughs> that you play them at forever. I, I'm thinking about <laughs> a Saturday live skit where Peyton Manning was playing football with a bunch of little like toddlers and he was just throwing the ball hard at them and tackling them and all the rest of that and just like teaching them life skills. And it was pretty yeah. fun. So you're not suggesting that per se. No, but I, I mean, one of the things that we will do as parents, rightfully so, is we'll, you know, we'll let our kid win at the race or we'll let them win at Candyland because you know we, we want them to have that happiness and that experience and that joy and and to be honest them winning is way easier than if they lose but one thing that to set them up for success in the real world um, is to sometimes give them exposure to losing in a controlled setting so you know maybe you have that race and one time you win and but then you have the time after to, you know, help them navigate those feelings and work through them and understand that this is just one outcome. And sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose, but there's okay, it's okay. And there's benefits to both. Um, so giving them exposure in a safe, supportive environment to losing helps. I think also um, to like one of my favorite games to play with my children um, and I suggest often to do with for families who maybe child struggling with this is to let my kids like we'll be driving around you know we're always driving our kids everywhere let them ask me like what was your worst day or the worst thing that happened in grade five to be honest, sometimes I have to like maybe finesse something a little bit. But. I love that. I was going to say fabricate, but we'll, you, we'll use finesse. That's great. But telling my kid that experience and my and the outcome, you know, how I overcame it or what I did to make it better or whatever, that's really valuable because that, first of all, kids love storytelling. They also benefit greatly from someone that's their leader that they pretty much see get everything right all the time hearing that actually, no, they don't. There's been times where they've struggled and there was growth mindset and process that they went through to overcome that and move on. And I think that normalizes that for kids, helping them, you know, if that happens to them or something similar or they have a hard day or whatever, they can overcome that because you've normalized that this is okay and there's things that you can do. So that's another great strategy. And then with younger children, because this is a skill, right? It's something we want to start young. And as our kids grow all the way up to teenagers, we're going to keep having to touch on it and, you know, develop the skill. And so reading children's storybooks about, you know, resiliency and, you know, perseverance. And there's so many wonderful books out there to read. And that just, again, is another opportunity to normalize this and, help learn what the character did and how they can maybe apply that to them and all that sort of stuff. So that would be another tip. What are some of your favorites uh, for children books? 
Oh, well, I mean, to be honest, the Franklin series is a really great series for younger kids to, for all that, that I'm, I'm talking about. Um, there's also the, the bean series, um, like, or the seed series. I, I, that that's really good. They have that. Um, there's one called the most magnificent thing, which is a great one about sticking with it and, you know, trying again and again, and then you eventually get it. So those are some titles. I could also send you a list, which might also be helpful. <laughs> That'll be wonderful. And for all the listeners, we'll, we'll include that as uh, in the show description as is some of uh, Karen's favorite uh, childhood or children's books to help deal with conflict and all the inevitable things that arise for, for a child in their childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so not every kid has a sibling, but most uh, parents have at least a, a couple of children. So... That brings up a whole new kind of opens up a whole new can of worms, which is how do siblings interact? What's uh, some of the inevitable conflicts that arise with that? Um, maybe let, let, let's switch gears and talk about um, siblings and, and the unique struggles and uh, strategies for that. Yeah, so, um, well, I guess I could start from like introducing a new sibling into your family. And, you know, you're, if, for example, if you have one child and now they're moving into a big sibling role and a new siblings coming in. I think that one of the the most important things that families can do to help set their, you know, older child up for success is again, it's kind of like that back to school thing, but it's preparing and previewing what's to come because it is a huge transition. It is a shift in roles and, and kids knowing what's to expect as best as possible is going to help them be more adaptable and manage better when that new sibling comes. And one of my favorite tips for that one is, you know, I think it's great. We now have like videos and photos of our children when they were babies, you know, your, your little guy in a bassinet or whatever, and it's going to be that same bassinet that the next sibling's going to use. And that's a really wonderful way to prepare your child um, also, typically, if they're toddler, preschooler, early school age, they're still in that egocentric stage of thinking. So it's also really beneficial because they're like hearing about themselves and you were a baby and you were in that bassinet and you really liked it when I did this to you. I wonder if your our new baby will like it when you do that to them. And, you know, it really helps them identify with their role as a big sibling, but also what it might be a little bit like having a, a new baby around. So From the beginning, I would definitely recommend that. I think as children grow and develop, obviously something I talk to families a lot about is sibling squabbles um, and, you know, sibling fighting. And of course, that's not anything that we, that's not what we want or we hope for when we add more children to our families, but it is normal. I do often suggest sort of, I'd say two tips around that is one I recommend for families to kind of, not like ignore the sibling squabbles, but sometimes those sibling squabbles are being done because they're attention seeking behavior. And you know, when the squabble happens, we come in and try to solve the problem. And I recommend for families to try to hold back a little bit. Obviously if it's dangerous, we need to insert ourselves, but if it's not and they're having an argument or whatever, sometimes it's best to just always when the fight starts to have a target, you know, I'll count to 30 in my head. And once I get to 30, if the fight's still happening, then I'll insert myself. But often, especially the more you do this, my kids figure it out because they're realizing they're not getting any attention for the behavior. So therefore they just give up or work it out or move on or whatever. 
If they don't though, then I recommend for families to come in and usually it's around a thing. So take the thing and hold it and then have your siblings say, we have a problem, present the problem and have them try to come up with a solution versus us just coming in and solving the problem. Two reasons for that. One, children will maybe do their own solution versus yours. <laughs> and the other is it's teaching them that skills as to how to problem solve. So the next time when you're doing your count to 30 in the corner, they might actually start to use those skills. And then the final thing around siblings is I think it's really important for families to try to create like a team environment. You know, we are a team. We are in this together. I, and when children feel like they're a part of something, they're much more successful. They want to contribute positively because they want to be a part of that group. And so things to do are, you know, have family traditions. Like my family, we always have a pasta dinner on Sunday. That's just what we do. Um, you know, even when your kids are younger, like I wouldn't do it now because my 11 year old would roll his eyes at me. But when they were younger, I'd say, we're going on a Irwin family walk, like make them feel like they're a part <laughs> of a thing. That's going to help, you know, sort of fuel this team mentality and, and help just create that group um, togetherness and everyone wanting to be a part of it. I love it. Um, you mentioned something that I think that uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't explore it a little bit more, which is the idea of sharing. And um, that's often why siblings will get in some sort of fight is because of the idea of not wanting to share. Um, how do we teach the concept of sharing to a child? Well, there's a couple ways, but one is, you know, often we'll teach the concept of sharing in the moment when we want them to share. And it's like mm. high stakes, right? <laughs> and so like, you know, that's hard because there, there's all the emotion and the pressure around it, making it difficult for children to, to take in the skills that you're suggesting. And so again, kind of like back on that role playing, but it is to teach and role play sharing sort of in your day-to-day -day life between the parent and the child. So a great example is maybe, you know, you're getting ready and you have a hairbrush and your toddler wants to use the hairbrush. Well, typically we just give it to them because, you know, <laughs> makes we don't really need it. And But that's a really great opportunity to expose your, your toddler to sharing, being patient, waiting their turn and recognizing that they're then going to get it. And so I would say like, yes, you can use my hairbrush after I use it. I'll just count to three and then it's your turn. And I'd one, two, three, and then here you go. Thanks so much for waiting. And, you know, maybe over time I would extend that length of time that I'm asking my toddler or preschooler to be patient until I give them the brush. I would even sometimes have them kind of escalate and struggle a little bit with that and then give the brush so that they see that sometimes that's a feeling that they have, but it's okay because they'll eventually get their turn. So I think that's a really valuable tool. Again, reading books, um, children's storybooks, you can use that as like dialogue, like, oh, look, what did they do while they were waiting for their turn? Oh, maybe you could try that. Um, those sort of, that conversation helps. And the other thing too that I'll remind parents is sort of like pick your moments and, you know, maybe having your child share, um, you know, after school when they're exhausted is not going to be the most successful time. So maybe we actually set them up to be successful. You play in this room and you play on that side of the island, that sort of thing. The other thing, too, is just recognizing play patterns. 
as children are young, they still play in parallel play. So they might be four and both playing with the Lego, but they're, and they ha are playing with the same materials, but they're actually not working together. They're doing their own thing in their own lane with that material. And that's very normal. And so sometimes we have to set up the play experience to support that stage that they're in. That makes a lot of sense. Going back to the hairbrush analogy. So having the child wait three seconds as you finish using the hairbrush and then you give it to them, would you then encourage after they use it for a few seconds to then encourage them to share it back to you and continue this process back and forth? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe not the first time. Maybe I would let them have that exposure of waiting and then they have a turn and then maybe the next time, you know, it's not the hairbrush, but it's something else. I would say, yeah, I'm going to have my turn. Then you have your turn and you can decide if it's going to be for three times or five times and then give it back to me. So I would preview that role play so that they, um, you know, know that that's coming, making them better, more successful at it. That makes sense. Um, another one of your great posts uh, at uh, ruroo.family on Instagram is you talk about uh, phrasing and, and very specifically you give an example with a sibling where you say mommy is helping the baby right now and instead of saying mommy is helping the baby right now you would disassociate and say mommy's hands are helping your, your little baby brother or the baby right now. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of phrasing and why that's important? Yeah, I talk about phrasing a lot and um, in my posts and just in my practice. And I, well, you know, that specific one, again, it's kind of like that your older sibling might think that they have sort of ownership over you because they've spent all this time with you and you've built this connection and they're still too young to understand that, you know, there's lots of you that can go around and if you're helping one, it doesn't mean you're not going to help the other later. And so really that example is, it's your hands, not you. So your child knows that you're still there. You can still look at them. You can still talk while you're using your hands with the other child, but it just helps them um, accept it a little bit more and better manage it. The other thing too is you can create consistency in it where maybe one time your baby's upset and you can say to your baby, you know, mommy's hands are helping older sibling right now. And when I'm done, then they can help you. And your older sibling hears that, which helps them learn. It goes both ways. So, um, but I think phrasing creates understanding for kids, which is really important. I think it also creates a cue for kids. So a great example for that is maybe you have a specific song or a specific phrase that you say to your child before you put them to bed and say good night. Um, and that is creating a cue for their body to know what's next to come because every night you say that same thing, helping set them up for success. The same with a drop off, you know, maybe when you drop your child off, you always say like, have a great day. I can't wait till I see you at home. That's going to help your child know like, oh, when I hear that, now my body transitions into that, this new phase of my day. So I think they play a role in that. Um, and I just think also that, you know, they sort of respect children, <laughs> that a lot of the phrasing suggestions that I make respect children in the stage of thinking that they're at and makes them more meaningful and, and helps them be more successful. Uh, phrasing, uh, even as adults, uh, we, we can learn a lot about, uh, um, I'm a big golfer. And so when you, when you go golfing and you're uh, 
golfing with new people or your friends, you really get a real glimpse into how they speak to themselves <laughs> and the phrasing that they use when the game's not going well. And, you know, this is just what they say out loud, let alone what's internal and right. what that internal dialogue is. And so uh, just being cognizant and being very aware of the phrasing we use for ourselves, as well as obviously with our children, because they're going to be emulating it and soaking it all up, mm-hmm. um, I think is one of the most valuable things. But mm-hmm. Speaking of that, I mean, you've got a pretty extensive background. I mean, you've got a master's degree in early childhood studies. You've obviously been working with families in a consulting role. You've worked with sick kids for a decade. I'm kind of curious that, you know, if you kind of put yourself back at the very beginning, what were some of the things that kind of surprised you about uh, children's development? Is it something that maybe, um, you know, it wasn't intuitive or, or was a little bit counterintuitive and, and that maybe just surprised you like, wow, I didn't realize that, but I'm grateful that I know that. Mm-hmm. That's a really great question. Um, <laughs> Put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> you know, I, I I think I probably didn't anticipate the importance of exposure and um, role play in helping children be successful. And I think that, um, and if I looked, think about exposure specifically, um, I think that in my career at Sick Kids, as I spent longer there and was exposed personally exposed to different children going through different treatments and there for different reasons. I recognize how exposing kids to things that they might experience in an age appropriate and playful way, help them be very successful or more successful. And I see that now playing out in my home life, exposing my kids to, you know, what's going to come or how it might feel, or that has been really helpful for me as a mother, but then also with the families that I work with, like I'm constantly thinking like, okay, so there's a challenge around going potty. Um, How can we expose the potty in a fun, playful way to create comfort around it, to encourage your child to then eventually be able to use it. So I don't think I valued or understood the importance of exposure. And, you know, you think kids are so young, like how can you expose them to these, these things in a way that's going to be meaningful for them? And all that experience, I think, has really helped me be able to shape my thinking around that and recognize the importance of that and that we can do that. Yeah. That's great advice. Uh, Karen, you've been a wealth of information. Um, I know our listeners have gotten more than a few actionable tidbits and and a lot of really great information from you. So if listeners want to know a little bit or how to reach you or or find some of your resources, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. So Instagram is a great way to reach out to me. You can always send me a DM. Um, Also, I, you know, it's a great place for families just to follow because I, as you have shared, I give lots of tips and supports through that resource. Also, my website, uh, www.rootfamily.ca. That's a great place to connect and learn more and really learn about all the offerings that we have through Roo Family and how we can support your family. So, yeah. And that's Roo Family, R-O-O Family. For everybody it. listening. Yeah, Karen, I want to thank you again for your time. Uh, thanks for sharing all that valuable insight. And uh, hopefully this is not the last time. In fact, I, I don't think this will be the last time we no. speak because you had a lot of information to share. So again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'd love to join you again sometime.